I want to welcome you into the Sunday Preaching Podcast of the Point Church, located in beautiful Perdido Key, Florida. I'm Tim Coleman, the senior pastor, and we believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live to our service, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. I want to turn your attention to the screen, if you would, with me. And I want you to say these two verses out loud as we transition into uh, the message today. If you're a guest, we're in this little mini-series on acceptable worship. And we looked at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28. And I want you to say those two verses with me. And then we're going to briefly look at the definition of worship. And then I want to read the text with you uh, today from 1 Kings chapter uh, 13. So let's say these words together on the screen together. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. What is worship? Look at the definition on the screen. I want you to say this with me. Worship is the God-centered focus and response of the soul. It is being preoccupied with God. One more time. Worship is the God-centered focus and response of the soul. It is being preoccupied with God. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Kings chapter 13. All right, grab your Bible, your phone, uh, whatever you have. There's some Bibles in the racks around you under the pew. We're looking at the story of Jeroboam in the Old Testament, and we're looking at principles of what acceptable worship truly is. Uh, I'm going to meander around through chapter 13 with you for a few minutes, but I want to read for you verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Notice there are three uh, characters in the text that we'll look at today. We see the first two in the first 10 verses. Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing at the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David. Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you, the priest of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. When the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God. Pray for me that my hand may be restored. 
And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand restored to him and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not, or you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. And this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, this is your word, and I'm your servant. You have brought us all together for this moment today. And God, I know that you want to do something fresh in us and through us. I thank you for the Old Testament that is so rich, not only in history, but in life application. As we look at Jeroboam's life and continue to see how he leads the people in the wrong direction as it relates to worship, I pray that you will speak to us today, help us to continue to examine our lives, our passion, our focus, the way we live. Lord, we want to be true worshipers, and we pray that there will be a spirit now in this room that is God-centered and that there is a pure, honest response of our souls as we are preoccupied with you. So do your work in us and through us, we pray. In Christ's name, and God's people said, amen. Be seated if you would. Sometimes God Almighty will just interrupt a worship service. 1998, it was Wednesday night, we were in church having our Wednesday night Bible studies, and there were a series of F5 tornadoes coming through Birmingham where we were in ministry at that time. I'll never forget that as somebody kind of walked up on the stage while the pastor was teaching the Word, and he just stopped the service, and we all went and got in the basement. Uh, thank the Lord we did that. It was, a, it was an awful night. Uh, and you, you think, why in the world did that had to happen? How many of you believe that God is sovereign over the weather? Uh, even while the church is gathered. Some of you have heard me mention several years ago, Dr. James Walker was standing right here preaching one Sunday morning, right in the middle of his sermon in the 9 o'clock service, and he had a massive heart attack standing right here and uh, hit the floor and all kinds of chaos broke out. And as I was studying this week, I was just reminded that God was sovereign even in that moment. A couple weeks ago, I read for you Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24 where God said, stop it, stop your praying, stop your singing, stop your religious activity. I, I don't want to see the things that you've got going on. I don't want to receive your offerings. And the, of course, moral of that moment was that the people's heart was not truly set on God. How about Acts chapter 5? Anybody ever read the story of Ananias and Sapphira? And God kind of stopped the service in the middle on Sunday morning, right, as they came in, and the Scripture says they lied to the Holy Spirit about the offering that they had given, and both of them passed away in the middle of the Sunday morning gathering. 
In our text today, through the man of God, God interrupts Jeroboam, who is leading a public worship gathering. And you have to ask the question, Jeroboam, what in the world are you doing? God called you to be the king. He called you to be a righteous king, as a matter of fact. But here you are, you have put yourself in the place of being a priest. Some scholars say that very likely Jeroboam is standing here at the altar and he's offering incense with with priestly garments on. God did not call him to be a priest. He called him to be a king. And God sends the man of God to walk up into this moment and to put a stop into what's going on. I love Dale Ralph Davis in his book, First Kings, The Wisdom and Folly. He said this, Yahweh has not changed today, and he does not hesitate to come barging right after you when you're in the middle of your idolatry. He'll throw roadblocks in your path. Sometimes he'll send reasonably obnoxious servants to you as well, but that is good news that God our Creator will do almost anything to pry you away from the golden calves in your life. His mercy makes waves before his judgment arrives. Jeroboam is called by God into this position, but very quickly he becomes an insecure man. And insecurity many times will turn you into a control freak. Jeroboam has his hands all over the nation. And now he has his hands all over the worship of the people of God. So much so, he's so full of himself and he's so full of pride that he thinks it's okay for him to be standing there and offering the incense on the altar. When you think about the book of 1 Kings, there is a theme of the book of alternate worship. And I've been reminding you in these last three sermons that worship must be pure. Worship must be done God's way. God does not have a plan B. God does not accept alternate worship. And so we're looking at Jeroboam, and we're we're looking at the worship in the nation, and we're learning from this narrative of the importance of worship and the importance of doing it God's way. So let me give you a few more principles that we learn here in chapter 13. I think we see in chapter 13 that as Christ followers, as God's people, we must avoid blended worship. We must avoid blended worship. Now, that phrase has been used over the last several decades primarily to refer to music in the church. I mean, we've always had these conversations about the old and the new. Can I get a witness right there? How much old should we sing? How much new should we sing? And so, Over these last few decades, Joe knows this, there's this attempt to to just have a variety, right, and blend it together, sing some of the new stuff and sing some of the old stuff. I'm not going to talk about music today, but I want to remind you that there was a day when Amazing Grace was a brand new song. And I wonder if somebody might have said, we're not going to sing any new stuff. I, I remind you, there was a day, there was a day when the piano was forbidden in the church. You couldn't have piano at church because that was a barroom instrument. Well, now we have pianos in the church. We don't think anything about it, right? Let me get back to my sermon, blended worship. I'm not talking about music today. I'm talking about 
what we see in the text in our lives. Blended worship. There's always this tension that you and I live with in loving Jesus, wanting to serve Jesus, wanting to honor Jesus, wanting to give him praise and adoration while you and I are living in the allurement of this world. The problem in 1 Kings chapter 13 is that Jeroboam thinks in his mind that he has devised an okay form of pluralistic worship. He thought in his mind, well, I've got my own thing going on. I've satisfied my insecurities. Uh, I'm mixing God in here. I'm still talking about God and pointing to God while he's got a golden calf and he is promoting Canaanite pagan worship in the land. How do we know how God feels about this? Well, I, I think we could just read the Scripture and know that this is not okay, but I want you to know that God speaks directly to this moment. God does not accept blended worship. God does not accept our own potion or our mixture. He wants us to be holy, our hearts to be holy, set on Him. In chapter 14, I'm not going to get into today, Jeroboam's son is sick unto death. And so he comes up with a plan to disguise his wife and send him to Ahijah, the prophet that had revealed to him his original calling. The text says that when Jeroboam's wife arrives to see Ahijah, God had already informed Ahijah that she was on her way. Ahijah is on up in years. He's blind. He can't see. She steps in the door and begins to tell him the problem. And in 1 Kings chapter 14, to verse number 7, this is the response that God has from Ahijah to Jeroboam's wife for him to go, for her to go and tell him. Look on the screen. 1 Kings 14, verse 7. You go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people, and I made you leader over my people, Israel. I tore away the kingdom away from the house of David, and I gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you, you have done evil, and above all, who were before you, and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking my anger. Notice this next phrase. But you have flung me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. So let me ask you, what did God think about this blended worship service? He said to Jeroboam, Jeroboam, I'm not impressed. As a matter of fact, I'm going to show you how I'm not impressed. I'm going to wipe you and all your descendants off the face of the earth. Our God is a God of love, but our God is also a God of holiness, righteousness, and judgment. And he says to Jeroboam, Jeroboam, here's what you've done. I gave you this wonderful opportunity to lead my people in monotheistic worship, and what you have done is you have flung me behind your back. You have done your own thing. Church, I remind you that worship 
has to be pure. And we cannot fall into a trap in thinking that because of a variety of reasons that you and I could not have the wrong spirit or our focus and our heart not be in the right place and we not be guilty of pushing God to the side and pushing ourselves forward. On the other hand, we have to remind ourselves that God wants us to love Him with all our heart, soul, and mind. We talked about how worship is not just something that we do on Sunday at 9 o'clock or 1045, but we are worshipers. That's what we've been created for. That's our normal employment. I mean, you're to be a worshiper tomorrow just as much as you are today. And when you get to Thursday and Friday, you're still supposed to be worshiping. So what is the tension? I'll tell you what the tension is. You and I live in this world. And it's always a challenge of blending ourselves and our walk with Jesus into the allurement of this world. The Apostle John, the apostle of love, always talking about love, always encouraging love among God's people. Said in 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 15, my little children, do not, do not, look on the screen, do not love the world. Neither the things that are in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, what's that second word there? Say it with me. For, for, Everything in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride that we have in our possessions, it's not of the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away with its lust, but the one who does the will of the Lord will remain forever. If you and I are going to be true worshipers, we cannot worship the things of this world. Some people worship their toys, and it has their attention and their focus. Some people worship their money. It, it consumes us, and all you think about is money. You think about more money, and enough's not enough. Some people are, are worshipers of politics. Or if we could get people to love Jesus half as much as people love politics today, we might have revival in the church. We worship sports, and we worship hobbies, and we worship so many other things, and, and all of those things are not bad in and of themselves, but whenever we love anything in this world more than we love Jesus, we're letting idolatry come into our heart and in our mind. How many of you know you got to guard your heart? Wave at me. you got to guard your heart. I have to guard my heart, and I have to make sure that I do not allow my flesh to guide my worship, but I must let the Spirit of God guide me into true biblical worship. Now, now let's make some practical application of what's happening here in our text. I love what James R. Edwards says, evaluate your heart. He said, how easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-interest. Anybody had a pity party with yourself lately? Can I just raise both of my hands? I found myself Friday night at home by myself. Pity party. And I can tell you, it doesn't do well. It's not good for me when I eat my own cooking, right? So I'm home alone this week. Missy's in Guatemala. Lexi's at the lake. And the other three kids have just abandoned us and moved out of the house, right? 
but you have things in your life where you get a pity party, you have a, you have a conversation. You know, we can take things and make it about us. We can make it about our wants, our needs, what I want to do, what I want to see, what, what I want to receive, what somebody's going to do for me, and, and don't think for one second that can't affect the church. How easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-interest, or worse, self-interest is masked as worship and discipleship. Worship is not about me. Worship is not about you. Worship is about a thrice holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So the only kind of blended worship we really want to have is this, Ralph P. Martin. Christian worship, then, is the happy blend of offering to God our Creator and Redeemer through Jesus Christ both what we owe to Him and what we would desire to give Him. We owe Him our lives, do we not? Now hear me. God does not want one-seventh of our life. I'm talking about corporate worship day. God doesn't want 17% of your life, if I did the math right. God wants 100%. 100%. He wants it all. After all, God gave us His very best in His Son, the Lord Jesus, on the cross. And so we, we owe it to Him. And because we owe it to Him, we desire to give Him acceptable worship not our leftovers, but our very best. So we have to avoid blended worship. I think all of us need to evaluate our hearts and say, is there something that I love or has my attention or my passion more than the gospel? And then make some corrections in our life. The second thing I want you to see in this text is in this moment at this unacceptable worship service, God's response is not always immediate. I mean, don't you wish that every Sunday was like Acts chapter 2 where we got together, we prayed, and the building shook, and everybody's hair's moving because the wind's blowing? I mean, that would be pretty neat, right? Incredible story to read in the Scripture. And sometimes we get together like this and we worship and we go, you know, what is, what is God's response to how we worship? And sometimes it's not always in the immediate. And this story reminds me that there's an attribute of God that we need to celebrate and rejoice over, and that is His mercy. His mercy. Mercy's not getting what we do deserve. What do you think Jeroboam deserves standing here at this altar? I mean, we read a story like this and we go, man, it's, it's a wonder God didn't zap him with a lightning bolt. What's he doing standing there with that incense altar? And, and, and what is he doing? God... God could have, in that moment, wiped him off the map. But rather, he gives him mercy. As a matter of fact, Jeroboam gets 22 years to serve as the king. And in my mind, as I, as I picture him standing around the altar, as he's leading the entire nation in idolatry, God's response gets his attention, but it doesn't change his heart. The man of God. I'll talk more about him in just a minute. Steps up to the altar. And notice he doesn't directly address Jeroboam in the moment. He addresses the altar. And he says, here's what's going to happen on this altar. God's going to raise up a king named Josiah. Well, 
get back to him in a minute. And he's going to come and he's going to wipe this thing out. It's going to happen in the future. But in the immediate, verse number five says, the ground begins to shake and the altar is torn down. And in that moment, Jeroboam responds and he wants somebody to arrest or seize the man of God because of what he's doing to his worship service. And when he sticks, uh, sticks his hand out toward him, God withers his hand in place. How many of you, if you would have been Jeroboam in that moment, that would have maybe gotten your attention? So he's standing there. And notice Jeroboam's heart in his mind. He's not overwhelmed about what he's doing. He's not overwhelmed about the fact that God is getting his attention. And, and it's actually God's mercy in his life that God doesn't strike him dead. He only withers his hand. What is Jeroboam's response? His response is what happens to a lot of people who get entangled in the things of this world and we live in our flesh and we live for idols and so many other things. And then when a crisis comes, we want to have a prayer meeting. Now hear me, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. But wouldn't it be good if we were just living in a life of prayer so that when the crisis came, it wasn't something new in our lives? How many of you experienced that before? You remember back on 9-11? Everybody in America wanted to pray. Let's get in Yankee Stadium and fill it up. Let's pray. Everybody pray. People who give God no attention, no respect, They'll say, hey, throw up a prayer for me in a time of crisis. You see, Jeroboam is not overwhelmed about what he's doing. He's not overwhelmed about how he has led the people. And I want you to see that this is actually a moment of mercy because God's final judgment in Jeroboam's life is not until later. D.A. Carson said the way we live in response to the mercy of God lies at the heart of Christian worship. I wish I could tell you that this changes Jeroboam and his, and his worship and his outlook, but unfortunately it doesn't. In acceptable worship, we all realize and recognize the mercy of God in our lives, and that leads us into true Christian worship. The, the next thing I want you to see in the story is this. This is so important. In acceptable worship, God's Word must be declared and obeyed regardless of feeling. God's Word. Notice, notice this theme of God's Word. God's Word. It comes, it comes from the man of God. Now, isn't it interesting that we don't have the name of this man? Uh, Josephus gives us a name, says his name was Yodan. We're not sure about that. It was God's plan for this man of God to be nameless here in the text. The, the phrase, man of God, is used 78 times in the Bible in 72 different verses. It's used uh, in reference to Moses and David. And you may remember Shimei a couple of weeks ago uh, who went to Rehoboam uh, from God and gave him a word from the Lord and said, don't, don't go to war against your brothers and sisters. It's used only twice in the New Testament. It's used by Paul in his writings with Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, he speaks directly about Timothy, the pastor, and he calls him 
the, the man of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, many of you know those verses where it says, all scriptures given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete or mature. And scholars say it very clearly there is, is making a reference to pastors. Pastors are called to be men of God. They're men of God in the Old Testament. They're men of God in the New Testament church. I was reading a piece by Dr. Donald Whitney the other day on, on the man of God, and he made this statement. He said, a man of God does not have to be a pastor, but every pastor is supposed to be a man of God. There's a calling that comes on your life to be a man of God. Here, the, the man of God is, first of all, chosen by God. He is representing God. The, the man of God is supposed to speak with God, and he is to speak for God. And God sent him on a mission to the altar there to speak that day to Jeroboam. And I love this. I love the way the man of God does not flinch when Jeroboam responds. He doesn't flinch. He says to Jeroboam, God's going to strike this altar down. And then the hand withers. And Jeroboam says, would you pray for me? Would you entreat your Lord to heal my hand? The man of God begins to pray, and God restores Jeroboam's hand. What is Jeroboam's response? He says to the man of God, hey, come home with me. I'll give you something to eat. I'll give you something to drink. I want to give you a reward. And I love that the man of God doesn't flinch. Because I'm going to tell you, a true man of God is not for sale. A true man of God cannot be bought. The Lord had told him, don't you, don't you hang around here. Don't you eat anything? Don't you drink anything? You get out of here. As a matter of fact, you go back a different way. You get in there, you say what needs to be said, and I'll take care of the rest. And I ask you today, why is it that when what must be said is said, it seems like that we immediately begin to apologize for what needs to be said. Men of God speak the truth. It doesn't mean the men of God speak in rudeness or anger or malice or, or being unkind, but sometimes the man of God has to just speak the Word of God. Notice the theme in this chapter around 17 times, nine times. It says, the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord. A total of 17 times there is a reference to God's word, His commands. The word of God, the man of God. Today, I believe the Christian church is suffering from a lack of men of God. Men of God. I thank God for all the Bible-believing, Bible-preaching men of God who today are declaring truth from the sacred desk. Standing on the Word of God and not flinching. Anybody in the room agree with me? We need more of that, not less. As, as, as many wonder, as the church wonders, as the church drifts, may men of God declare the Word of God. I don't stand here today to give my opinion. I don't stand up here to talk about how I feel or, 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 or what I think. 
The man of God needs to speak boldly and declare the word of God. And I admire the man of God in that he does that with Jeroboam. But we keep reading in verse number 11, we have a, a plot twist. And I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter, but I do want to walk you through it for just a minute. We have a, a plot twist. After the man of God finishes, he takes off down a road. There's another thing going on in the city of Bethel. Verse number 11 says there's an old prophet that lives in the city there of Bethel. And two of his sons were standing by the altar when the man of God did what he did. So they went back and told their dad, the old prophet, this is what happened. And the prophet said, well, where did he go? And they said, well, he went down this road. And he said, well, saddle up the donkey. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go find this dude. I want to talk to him. And sure enough, the old prophet goes down the road, and Scripture says they find the man of God sitting under an oak tree. The old prophet says to them, hey, why don't you come home with me? You can refresh yourself. I'll get you something to drink. I'll get you something to eat. You can relax a little bit, and I'll take care of you. Once again, once again, the man of God declares the word of God. He stands boldly, and he says to the old prophet, no, I can't do that. God told me, don't you eat anything, don't you drink anything, you go in there, you speak the word, you get out. And I want you to notice what the prophet does to him in verse number 18. Look on the screen. He said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But notice those last few words. But he lied to him. But he lied to him. Now, I need to transition here from kind of point three to point four and say God's word must be declared and obeyed regardless of our feelings. But I also need to say that in our lives, we all need to live with the spirit of discernment. The man of God had the direct word of God. But he encountered someone who said, I'm a representative of God too. And the angel of the Lord came to me with a word from the Lord and told me to tell you to come on to my house. And sadly, what happens is the man of God believes this third-hand information. We're living in a day today when it comes to acceptable worship. When we have to be careful about the deception of the enemy. Deception. Not everyone who says, I'm called. Not everyone who says, I'm a pastor. Not everyone who says, I'm a spiritual leader is actually speaking truth. There are some that are actually speaking lies. And from the pulpit across this room, every single one of us, we are susceptible to deception if we don't live in a spirit of discernment. Now let me ask you, what should the man of God done in this moment? He had a direct word from the Lord, but he encountered someone who said, well, the Lord told me 
the Lord spoke to me. How I many of you found out that not everybody who says that the Lord has spoken to? As a matter of fact, the heart of the third commandment in the book of Exodus, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain is not just for cussing. It means that you say, well, the Lord, the Lord said, the Lord wants, the Lord spoke to me, and the Lord ain't spoke nothing. Well, it's bad English, but it's true. How many times does God get credit for the deception of the enemy? And when we believe lies, when we do not have discernment, when it comes to acceptable worship, it only leads to heartache. I don't know in this moment, maybe the man of God was tired, maybe he was hungry, maybe it sounded convenient, maybe he needed some rest. I don't know, but the man of God, the man of God is duped by the prophet. It reminds me today that the enemy is slick. Enemy slick. You know what the man of God should have done? The man of God should have just stuck with the Word of God. Tomorrow's my 51st birthday. I know I don't look it. But by God's grace, I got a few years left. By His grace, don't know how long that is. I've been in ministry 32 years now. And by God's grace, my life's mission is to stick with the Word of God. Just stick with what God has said. When we get away from what God has said, when we lose our discernment, and, and watch this. It's a terrible thing when a, when a man of God or a pastor is declaring the Word of God, but he's not living it out in his private, personal life. It's a tragedy. We've got to match the two. God's Word must be declared. God's Word must be obeyed. And, and, and we must have a spirit of discernment in this day so that we are not led astray. I hate to tell you the rest of the story because it's sad. There's a lot of questions in this chapter that I don't have the answers for you today. We will never know till we get to heaven. Why, why, why was the man of God so bold and so strong standing in front of the king? But when he stands in front of a, a prophet, he listens to him and he goes home with him. And here's another question. I, I don't have the answer for you. I just know this is the Word of God. Why in the world, why in the world did the prophet of God who lied to the man of God, why did God use him in verse 21 of chapter 13 to speak judgment on the man of God? I don't know, but this is what it says. He cried to the man of God who came from Judah, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the Word of the Lord You've not kept the command that your Lord God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread or drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your father. The prophet says to the man of God, you're not even going to make it back home. God's fixing to take you out. I don't know about you, but I've studied this text backwards and forwards and upside down, and that gives me chills up my arms and down my back. 
God doesn't play when it comes to His business and His work. God doesn't play when it comes to what I'm doing right now. The man of God gets on the donkey. He doesn't respond. He doesn't get on the prophet for lying to him. There's some details again we don't have. He leaves the prophet of God's house, and it says God sends a lion who strikes him and kills him. This is an amazing story. And the man of God is laying in the road dead. Now get this picture. On one side of him is the lion standing there. On the other side is the donkey. And the word begins to circulate in Bethel. The man of God, you know, the one that called Jeroboam, remember the altar broke apart? That dude, he's dead. And the prophet of God gets word of that from his sons. And he goes and he takes the man of God's body and he buries it there in Bethel. He never made it back home to his family. Why did all of that happen? Because he lost his discernment. He lost his discernment. It's a serious matter when we do that, right? So the prophet of God buries the man of God and he tells his son, when I die, bury me right on top of him. There's some amazing things in this chapter. But I want you to notice the end of the chapter in verse 33. It says, and after this thing, and after this little story that I just walked through with you, after what happened with Jeroboam in his hand withering at the altar, the end of verse number 13 says, after this thing, Jeroboam did not, he experienced the mercy of God, but he did not turn from his evil way but he made priests of the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Jeroboam didn't get it. He didn't get it, did he? There's another detail I want to close with that, that I think is so important. Do you remember back when I was reading the text? The man of God is standing at the altar, and he says, God's going to have a man born in the house of David, and his name's going to be Josiah. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know Josiah was one of the good dudes. He wanted to do that which was right. He wanted to lead the people in the ways of God. When Josiah becomes the king, watch this, this prophecy spoken by the man of God is actually for 300 years later. Josiah reigned from 640 to 609. And, and as we look at Josiah's story, we find in 2 Kings chapter 23 that Josiah is leading reform in the nation. Manasseh has just finished up his reign. He did evil on the side of the Lord. There's, there's pagan worship. There's cult worship in the land. The descriptor of Manasseh's kingship is that there's, there's, there's violence, there's blood running in the streets. The temple of God is in shambles, and it needs to be repaired. Josiah sends Hilkiah, the priest. He says, I want you to go to the temple, and I want you to take inventory. Let's find out. We're starting over. 
Let's find out what we got left. And so he begins to take inventory, and he finds gold and, and, and silver and, and other things in the temple. But, but your Bible says an amazing thing. There was this great discovery. It says that Hilkiah found the book. Now, now let that sink in for just a minute. God's people didn't know where the Bible was. Are y'all tracking with me? They had lost the book. Where's the book? I don't know. Y'all seen it? Nope, I ain't seen it. For how long? We don't know. But for a period of time, there, there was no book. There was no Bible. And most scholars say it was very likely the book of Deuteronomy, the law of God's people. This is how we live. This is how we function. This is how temple worship is to be done. These are the commands of the Lord. Let's live this way. They lost the book. I would suggest to you that today in 2023, one of the reasons the church of the living God is suffering like it is is because many places have lost the book. We've lost the book. So the news comes back to Josiah. He's all excited. We found the book. We've got the book. So what are we going to do? Josiah says, I want you to get everybody, men, women, young people, children, let's get them all together. They gathered in one place, and Josiah read every word, every word of the law. He read the book to the people. God's people have always been a part of the public reading of the Scriptures. He reads it. And not only does he read the book to the people, but I, I want you to see in 2 Kings chapter 23 and verse number 15, he didn't just sit around and read the book. He did something about what was going on in the land. And he said, we, we've got to get back to being God's people. We've got to get back to functioning like God wants us to function. We've got to get back to, to offering acceptable worship. Look at us. Look at our land. Look at all these high places. Look at all these idols. Look at the temple. It's in shambles. And it says in 2 Kings chapter 23 and verse 15, look at this. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. That altar, our text today, 1 Kings 13, 300 years, 300 years later, that altar with the high place, you know what Josiah did? He didn't say, let's build a, let's, let's call some new priests. Let's build a sanctuary here. He said, yank that puppy down. Burn it. Reduce it to dust. He also burned the Asherah pole. Look at verse number 16. And as Josiah turned, he looked and he saw the tomb. And he took the bones out of the tomb and he burned them on the altar and defiled it. Here it is. According to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. I'm sure somebody was standing there and they, they probably said, oh, Josiah, he's a nasty dude. How could he, how, how could he, dig, up, how could he dig up dead people's bones and burn them on an altar? 
tell you why, because God said to do it. And if God said to do it, we need to get to it, right? Josiah said, we're going we're to go through this cleansing process. And he fulfilled the prophecy of the man of God. Let me close with this. When it comes to acceptable worship, always remember that God's promises are sure. And whatever he said is true. And whatever he says will happen, will happen. I'm closing with this quote. Look on the screen. R.A. Torrey said, God's word is sure and pure. In spite of the devil, in spite of your fear, in spite of everything, God's word is pure and it's sure. And if we're going to offer acceptable worship to God, we got to do it God's way with his plan. And all God's people said,